You're listening to the Redemption City Church podcast. To learn more about Redemption City Church, visit us online at rccbaltimore.org. Today's message comes from Pastor Adam Mutasib. Thank you, brother. In July of uh, 1961, a few months after the Green Bay Packers had a heartbreaking loss to the Philadelphia Eagles in the NFL Championship, Vince Lombardi, the Packers head coach and probably the greatest football coach of all time, kicked off the next season's training camp with this famous quote. He gathers all the men on his team and he says, gentlemen, this is a football. This is a football. And the team then opened their playbooks to page one and spent months focusing on the fundamentals, tackling, blocking, throwing, catching. And that's not what you'd expect from one of the most elite teams in the NFL. These are professional athletes. You wouldn't expect them to hear, this is a football. Well, after that focus on the fundamentals, the Packers that year went on to win the championship against the Giants, 37-0. to And they would win five of the next seven championships. And Lombardi would never again have a losing season and never lost a playoff game ever again. Brothers and sisters, this is a church. (laughs) Dr. Luke, or we could say football coach Luke, wants to take us to the book of Acts and show us the fundamentals of church. What's it all about? What do we do? I'm going to pass this to my wife. You can catch it. Yes! If you're watching the live stream, my wife just called the football. My boys have a promising future in athletics. Now, if you're here and you're a Christian, this passage about the church is incredibly important because Luke tells us what the first church did and what it looked like. And by inference, it shows us what the modern church should look like. And maybe you're a Christian who's looking for a church. Let Acts 2, 42 to 47 be the guide by which you determine what church do I want to join. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, welcome. We are so glad you're here. If the church has turned you off at some point, let me just say to you, if you're going to reject Christ and the church, at least make sure you're representing or you're, you're rejecting Christ and the church and not some bad representation of Christ and the church. Like, don't try Taco Bell and tell me Mexican food isn't good. That is not Mexican food. Don't try a church that looks nothing like this in Acts 2 and tell me this Jesus thing and this church thing is not for you. And you're going to see what the church is meant to be here. And just to give you some context, last week we covered Peter's sermon in Acts 2. And 3,000 people got saved and baptized. And this burst the early church, the first church. And what we're seeing All throughout Acts 2, and particularly as we get to verse 42, is revival. Now, revival is when the fundamentals or the normal operations of the church are at an unusual intensity and effectiveness. There's teaching, like there's always been teaching, but this teaching has a particular effect on the people. There's fellowship, there's always been fellowship, but there's, in revival... Like there's a new level of intimacy in the fellowship. We're confessing our sins to one another. We're pursuing peace with one another. You're coming together as a family. In revival, your, your prayer life has a new sense of vitality to it. 
You take communion and it hits you in a different way. Like, this is Christ's body broken for me and his blood poured out for me. Are you kidding me? You're meeting together and you're more consistent in evangelism. You see, revival is not doing something different. It's doing the same thing. It's doing what God has always prescribed to his people, but it's with different effects. And God has been, throughout the years, gracious to his church by giving them seasons of this, seasons of renewal. And this is what we're seeing in Acts 2. And so this morning, we're praying for an intensification of the normal operations of the church here at RCC and throughout the city. And so revival, in other words, is a return to the normalcy of the New Testament church. And so let's look at it now. There, there are a hundred different ways I could break this down or outline this, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to list Luke's 10 major fundamentals for the church, 10 things we should be focused on, and at the end I'm going to give you two applications on how you can actually apply this to your life, uh, you and I together. So let's go to training camp this morning. Ladies and gentlemen, this is a church, according to Dr. Luke. Number one, a healthy church and a healthy disciple is, number one, devoted to the Bible. Verse 42 says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And I think there's a priority here. I think there's a reason this is first. This was the diet of the church. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now, what is this teaching about? Well, if it's anything like Peter's sermon from the last section of Scripture, it's about how Jesus is the hero of the Bible. They devoted themselves, in other words, to see Jesus as the fulfillment of all the Scriptures. They sat submissively under the Scriptures and reveled in the grace of Jesus having already accomplished salvation for us. And the Bible is a testimony of all that. And that is still the job of pastors and teachers today. To take God's people, to take his bride and walk her down the aisle to the groom, Jesus. So that they can see him. They can wonder at him. And this is why the bride is happy and devoted. Because she's seeing the Savior. And when you're seeing the Savior in the scriptures, things begin to happen in your soul, don't they? And a spirit-filled Christian is devoted to seeing Jesus in the Bible. And a spirit-filled church is devoted to seeing Jesus in the Bible. And so we need a good diet. Uh, Pastor Thomas was just up here. He's one of our elders. He's actually a professional chef and also strategically one of my good friends. <laughs> He's known to drop off a filet mignon or a lobster at your house if you're a member of the church. So that's a plug to go to RCC 101 because you might get a filet mignon at your house from your pastor. And I asked Pastor Thomas, uh, what is the best restaurant you've ever been to in your life? And he actually said, there's this farm-to-table restaurant in California that was incredible, my favorite. Farm-to-table is this wave in the food industry of resources or food coming directly from the farm right to your table, fresh, right? And we need, friends, a farm-to-table church, straight from the scriptures to the table. And much of that obligation falls on our pastors to teach you the Bible. But all of God's people are to share in this. In Colossians 3.16 it says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. You see, devoting yourself to the apostles' teaching doesn't just mean you sit under the word humbly on Sunday mornings. It also means you embody, it dwells in you richly and you speak the word to your brothers and sisters. How are you doing that? Do you even want that from them? Bonhoeffer 
said this so well in his book about church and community life together. It's my favorite book on the church. He says, the Christian needs another Christian who speaks God's word to him. He needs him again and again when he becomes uncertain and discouraged. For by himself, he cannot help himself without belying the truth. The Christ in his own heart is weaker than the Christ in the word of his brother. His own heart is uncertain. His brother's is sure. And that also clarifies the goal of all Christian community. They meet one another as bringers of the message of salvation. Translation, Bonhoeffer is saying, you need brothers and sisters to speak the word to you. I don't know about you, but there's sometimes I'm reading a verse in the Bible. Like in Romans, it says there, there, there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But yet I'm still feeling so condemned by critics. Are things not going the right way? Or feeling like I'm not, I'm not doing enough for God? And I'm reading this verse and it's still like the truth is not hitting me. And I need to hand the Bible to a friend and say, read this over me. Tell me this. And for some reason, when someone else says it boldly over me, I actually start to believe it. We need people to speak the truth to our hearts because the word of Christ in a brother or sister is stronger than the word of Christ in our own hearts. Now, we can't just teach it. We can't just hear it. To be devoted to the Bible means you actually do it. You know, Romans 13, 6, Paul uses the same Greek word devoted uh, to describe the government being devoted to taxes. So essentially, Luke is telling us the way the government is devoted to your taxes is the way the church should be devoted to the Bible. Try not paying your taxes and see how the government comes for you. Well, the way our church, if we don't get Bible, we should be coming for each other, in a sense. That doesn't make sense. You know what I'm saying. <laughs> Sometimes, second service, all right? Have some grace with me, all right? <laughs> we should be devoted to the Bible in the same way the, church, the government is devoted to our, ta our taxes. And what stirs up God's righteous anger more than anything else, if you read the Bible, is religious people who know the Bible but don't do the Bible. Find me anywhere else where God is more angry. But we don't see that here in Acts 2, do we? They put themselves under the Bible. They conform their lives completely to what it says. And so should it be for us. They devoted themselves to the apostasy. And secondly, they devoted themselves to one another. Fellowship, it says. Notice in verse 42, it doesn't say fellowship in general. It says the fellowship, meaning the church, the local church. Not every Christian everywhere, but a particular community of believers in a city. This is a church, a group of people doing life on life together. And it's described in verse 44. All who believed were together and had all things in common. That's quite a definition of community, huh? There is a spiritual unity in the early church. They had all things in common. They were together. They shared a common faith, and not just a common faith, but a common life. Can you say that of your church? 1 John 1.3 says, we have fellowship with God and fellowship with one another. Those two things go together. If you're out of fellowship with God, you'll be out of fellowship with God's people. And if you're out of fellowship with God's people, you'll be out of fellowship with God. The two are joined together. And we see this all throughout the Bible. I mean, the story of the Bible is the story of people saved by Jesus in community together. And we see this in the one another texts that are all throughout the scriptures. I'm going to read a few of them. There's so many, but here's a couple I listed. I gave Megan a lot of work by putting all these verses on the screen. Let's just run through some of these together. 
John 13 says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. We, though many, are one body in Christ, talking about local church, and individually members of one another. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Instruct one another. Have the same care for one another. Through love, serve one another. Bear one another's burdens. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Do not lie to one another. Encourage one another. Always seek to do good to one another. Stir up one another to love and good works. Do not speak evil against one another. Do not grumble against one another. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. Love one another earnestly. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. And there are many more. The New Testament is a book of Christians in community with one another. Not Christians in general around the world, but a particular local church community serving one another. Now, it's pretty common today to hear Christians say, I love Jesus, but I don't need a local church. Maybe you're saying that right now. But friend, I don't, I don't see how you get that from the Bible. We see all throughout the scriptures that there is simply no category of Christian in the New Testament that is not a faithful member of a specific local church. Because there are simply countless commands you cannot obey if you are not a part of a particular local church family. One, in Hebrews it says, obey your leaders, submit to your elders. How do you do that if you don't have elders or pastors? It's kind of like a football player telling Vince Lombardi at training camp, yeah, coach, I want to play football, but I just don't want to be a part of a team. That wouldn't make sense because football requires a team. So does Christianity. Well, you might say in response to that, okay, I got it, but I would join a church if one looked like this. They don't. You might be like the secular folk artist Noah Gunderson, who I love. Not a Christian. He has a song called Jesus, Jesus. And in his song, he says, Jesus, Jesus, there are those that say they love you, but they treated me so gosh darn mean. Uh, he definitely doesn't use the words gosh darn. He uses different words, but I wanted to translate for our context. And to which I would tell Noah and you, yeah, me too. Christians can be pretty mean, pretty hypocritical. I'm first in line. In the Bible, even, we find Christians who are not walking in step with the Holy Spirit, and that results in their flesh coming out, and they're not nice people. They're tough to be around. And I think all of these countless numbers of one another commands are in the Bible, because Jesus knows how often church is going to hurt. And it can be tempting in our radically individualized American culture to bail on community. In his book, Habits of the Heart, Robert Bellis says, the one thing Americans hold dear is the idea that I am not accountable to anybody but myself for the meeting of my own needs. 
And that's the complete opposite of what we find in Acts 2. And let's just be honest, like, there are times someone has said something to me in the church community that have made me want to bail. They've treated me in a poor way, maybe they treat you in a poor way, and you're like, I just don't want to do this. They're, like, if somebody comes up to me and says, I don't like the way you're parenting your kids, and they're a part of my church family, you know what I want to say to them? You don't have kids. What are you talking about? Like, here, take mine for a few minutes and t- show me how it's done. Okay? Or I want to say, that is none of your business. Leave me alone. Right? That's so opposite of what we find here. Like, when somebody says something I don't like or asks a question I don't like, what I want to do is I want to avoid them, cut them off from my life, speak poorly about them to other people, resent them. That's so natural in our culture, in our flesh, isn't it? But that's not what we find in the scriptures defining the church. Devoting yourself to the fellowship means literally to give yourself away to them. Give yourself away to a community. And that means we don't just share our Sunday mornings or a few bucks, though we do share those things. It means we must forsake radical American individualism and we share our joys and we share our mistakes and we share our sins and we share our sorrows. And when someone offends us, which they will because they're human, they, we go directly to that person without talking to anyone else first and share with them in a spirit of grace of how they offended us. And we forgive them in the manner in which Christ has forgiven us, which is as if the action never happened. So that we can be, as verse 44 says, together and have all things in common. Now worldliness is saying, like most Americans do, I don't wanna be accountable to anybody. But godliness, we see in the early church, is clinging to your brothers and sisters and refusing to let Satan get in between you. And it hurts. It's hard for all of us. But here's what I found. And here's what Luke is trying to tell you. This is ultimately what Jesus is trying to tell you. It's worth it. It's worth it. Why? Because on the other side of your pain is your holiness. On the other side of your disappointment and hurt and awkward conflict is a person that looks like you, but looks a little bit more like Jesus. And you need community more than you realize. And this is the family God says you need. It's a family unlike any you will ever have. We need to be devoted to the apostles' teaching and secondly, devoted to one another. Thirdly, Paul, uh, Luke tells us, third fundamental is to be devoted to the Lord's Supper, or to the breaking of bread, he says in verse 42. This is also mentioned in verse 46. It says, they receive their food with glad and generous hearts. So they're breaking bread together. Most everyone agrees this is an allusion to the Lord's Supper that was probably taken at an actual meal, which I wish we could do every week, don't you? Like, having brunch together every week. You could eat as we do the sermon, maybe. Uh, But it's kind of logistically hard to pull off with 240 people every week. So uh, we're just not able to do that. And that's why this changes throughout time. Uh, later on in the book of Acts, as we continue, we see the church spreads to other cities and other countries. And this breaking of bread becomes more, uh, happens more in a weekly gathering. On the Lord's Day, they broke bread, took these symbols of bread and juice to represent Christ's sacrifice. And this is all about remembering Jesus, what he's done for us, what he's going to do for us in the future. And that's why we do it weekly here at RCC. 
Now, some wonder, if we do communion weekly, won't that get old? To which I always ask, why do people only ask that about communion? Like, no one ever says, why are we doing music every week? Does that get old? Why are we doing this sermon every week? Doesn't that get old? No one ever says that. Why do we think that about communion? I tend to agree with Charles Spurgeon, who says, doing communion every week heightens its importance rather than uh, lessens its importance and significance. And so 52 weeks, 52 weeks a year, we come to this table and hear Jesus say, I really do love you. Here's my body. Here's my blood as proof. You belong to me and I am coming back. You see, the Bible preaches the gospel to the ear. The table preaches the gospel to the eye. Fourthly, the church was devoted to prayer. If you look at the book of Acts, we see a number of examples of this, specifically in Acts 4 and Acts 12, which we'll see later. And they lived out what Paul says in Romans 12, to be constant in prayer. We see them in all kinds of contexts praying. It says that the text says the prayers. So they're probably going to the temple to pray collectively together. Uh, in the same way we just prayed together as a church a few minutes ago. And they're also probably pl- praying in each other's homes, kind of like we pray in gospel communities and stoop groups as we meet together throughout the week. Uh, or it can be like two friends in a coffee shop sharing their lives, pouring out their hearts, and one says to the other, can I pray for you? That's the kind of spirit you get in the book of Acts. Prayer everywhere, in formal gatherings, in homes, and just when they're out and about. And so what we do on the stage when we pray here or we speak here is not the only thing that matters. What you do in the lobby after the gathering, when you pray for a brother and sister, when you put your arm around them and encourage them and say, can I, can I talk to the Lord with you and for you? That stuff matters. When you go to someone's home who's struggling and praying for them, that's the spirit we get here. Fifthly, the church is doing mercy ministry, especially within the church. In fact, most of the mercy ministry we see in the Bible, and specifically in the book of Acts, is for the vulnerable in the church, not out in the city. They care for their people first, and then they care for the people in the city. And we see in verse 45 this happening. Uh, Verse 44 gives us the spiritual dynamics of fellowship, and verse 45 shows us practically what this looks like. It says they were, the church was selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. So they're an extremely generous church to one another. Now, some have taken this verse and said, oh, the Bible promotes communism. We need to do communism. This idea of like we take all our stuff and throw it in one pot and take whatever you need. Like there's no private property in the church, some say. Well, that's obviously not what's happening. The Bible teaches the right of personal property. In fact, one of the Ten Commandments is, Thou shalt not steal. What does that infer? If you can steal, then it doesn't belong to you. It belongs to someone else. The Bible affirms personal property. This is not teaching communism. What this is teaching is radical generosity. Now, the government cannot do what the church does, can it? Could you imagine this tax season right now? Some of you are CPAs, accountants, you're doing taxes. Could you imagine if the government was like, all right, guys, this year on your taxes, we want you to pray about what you ought to give to the government. (laughs) However the Lord leads you, give that much amount. All right, I'm sending in my check for 50 cents. There you go, Joe. That would never work, right? Like the government would collapse. But for some reason, the church doesn't. For some reason, no one's compelled to give. It's totally free. You have been saved by Christ and his work alone. You don't need to do anything. But you're offered to give like Christ gave. And the church still thrives. Why? Because regenerated people should be generous people. 
People who have Jesus as their Savior, who is the best giver ever, want to be like their Savior. Jesus is the best giver. He gave everything. And the people of God here find great joy in giving, particularly those in need, because they were once in need. Now, we do this publicly through offerings, collectively as a church. In fact, we give like over 20% of every dollar we receive outside the church to needs and ministries. But we also do this behind the scenes as members or as within our benevolence fund. Our church has provided cars for people who don't have them, paid off debts, provided heat for people who don't have heat, covered funeral expenses, provided different types of assistance to various types of people, and that's what the church does. We take care of each other, especially those who are in need. Now, that is hard to do if you don't have a new heart. But Jesus changes your heart. You know, Francis Schaeffer once said that there are two things people, especially American people, do not want to give up with their life. Personal peace and personal affluence. If you try and take either of those from people, they will flip out on you. Personal peace, what he meant by that is people don't want conflict. They don't want tension. They don't want to be confronted. And secondly, money. They just, people don't want their money taken away. Those are our gods, Schaefer says. And guess what? The church will snatch both away from you quickly. You cannot have a community like this and hold on to your personal peace and personal affluence. So you need to choose which one you want. And that's what happens here. When the gospel comes to a person's soul, they become an open-handed, generous person. And they're not just generous, if you notice, they're aware. They're sensitive to the needs of the community. And we, friends, need to live with a sensitivity and awareness of the needs of the vulnerable in our church. And be ready to share generously to meet those needs, especially the needs that are within our community. This is what we heard uh, Paul say as we went through the book of 1 Timothy last year. He says in 1 Timothy 6, as for the rich in this present age. I read a study this last week that says you're rich if you have a net worth more than $4,000. If you have more than $4,000 to your name, then you have more than 50% of what the, the rest of the world has. So if you have more than 4,000, this is talking to you. For the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty or arrogant, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Why does Paul say you and I need to share with the vulnerable if we have more than $4,000? Because we need to pry ourselves from the clutches of materialism that I guarantee have got, grabbed at or snatched at all our hearts. Have you ever uh, on your phone deleted your Facebook or Instagram app? Or you ever just, what I did to mine is I moved the app from the homepage to like the very far right page. My wife has time limits on her phone that she ignores, but anyway, sorry, sorry to call you out, babe. <laughs> Love you, sweetheart. This is a place of grace. This is a place of grace. <laughs> she said it's true, though. <laughs> why, why do we do all that, right? Because we find that Facebook social media is taking over our life. It's taking over our brain. It's taking away our peace. And we want to get ourselves free from the snatches, the temptation of that. Right? Well, Paul is saying here that there's something even riskier than too much social media. Too much stuff. Too much money. 
That's why Jesus talked about money more than he talked about anything else in the world. And Paul's saying, for your own sake, you need to be generous. You need to share. Your giving serves you before it serves anyone else. Giving always serves the giver before it serves anyone else. Why? Because it requires you to place a newfound trust in God, Paul says. Why? Because it's a better investment in your eternal future, Paul says. Why? Because Paul literally says it'll lead to a better life, that which is truly life. And so we should be ready to do mercy ministry, ready to share from our riches. Sixthly, sixth fundamental, Luke says, and day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. So they're, sixthly, constantly interacting with one another. They were involved in each other's lives. You cannot separate these people. You couldn't keep them away from each other. And half the job of fellowship, half the job when it comes to church is showing up. Being together, just being around each other. You know, Tom Rayner has done some research and shown that church members today, even the very best church members, in comparison to the past 30 years, attend far fewer weeks than in generations past. Many people view Sunday mornings as, well, if I'm not on vacation or if I'm not you know, on a trip or if I don't have anything better going on, then I'll show up. That's not the picture we see in Acts 2, is it? They want to be together. Anytime there's an opportunity, they're there. Because this is family. These are their friends. Seventh, they gathered in large and small groups. Notice it says, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. We got both, large groups, small group. Now, you can't fit 3,000 people in your home, can you? At least not in my home. If your home is that big, welcome to RCC. 3,000 people would not fit in a row home. So what this means is that they're gathering in big groups at the temple. When you think temple, think big, like what we're doing right now. And then they divide throughout the week and meet in each other's homes. So in other words, you've got this formal aspect of the church gathering where all the people are together. And then you've got this informal, smaller group aspect where there's life on life. It's meals. It's, it's hangouts. It's board game nights. It's barbecue. It's Super Bowl parties. And we do the same thing. We gather together as a big group, over 200 of us every Sunday, and then we meet throughout our various groups throughout the week. And Luke is prescribing both to us. And to be honest, I've met many Christians who strongly prefer one over the other, almost argue to the exclusivity of one over the other. And I just want to tell you, Paul, Luke says we need both. The principle is be together with God's people, be together with the multitude, all of us together, and also meet in homes and actually do life with people. Both are needed. Eighthly, Luke says, a healthy church embodies gospel culture. They have awe, they have gladness, they have praise. If you've been around me or been at RCC for a while, you know this is a big value that I talk about all the time. What is he talking about? Verse 33, 43 says that the church had all came upon every soul. Verse 46 says they had glad and generous hearts. Verse 47 says they were praising God. See, God cares not just what we do, but how we do it. What we say with our doctrine, we can easily unsay with our culture. I need to say that again. What we say with our doctrine or our sermons or our songs or our statements of faith, we can easily unsay with how we live. We can sing a thousand tongues like we just sang. You're worthy of praise for all eternity, God, and then be bored as we're singing it. And we're unsaying with how we're doing it, everything we're actually saying. 
We can say amen during the sermon, but still be a grumpy person. And unsay everything you amen. You see, a healthy church and a healthy Christian embodies its doctrine. You see, for Paul, especially in the book of Romans and all throughout the, the, the chapters and epistles, theology always leads to doxology. Intellectual facts always leads to songs of praise, to a life that's changed, to the one and others that we read about. See, a healthy Christian, a healthy church should light up the room. And we, we're seeing here, this, in this church, a beautiful mingling of joy and reverence in the body. Both are needed. Where the Spirit is at work, there's a combination of these two factors. Joy and reverence. And I know some songs, musical styles, lend themselves to joyful celebration, clapping. And some lend themselves to quiet meditation. We tend to excel at the quiet meditation here at RCC. We could grow at the joyful meditation, you know, the joyful celebration part. We'll get there, though. But both are good. Both are needed, joy and reverence. And I know some of you here have a hard time singing. But singing is healthy. Singing is good. The text says there should be gladness. There should be praise. There should be awe. And we live in a culture that's very intellectual. Our city has more PhDs than any other city I've been in. And a lot of you have been in school for like 25 years. I was like, it's... Exhausting. You've been in lectures for half, more than half your life. Probably like nine-tenths of your life you've been in classrooms. Like we need to loosen up a little bit. And we got a bunch of brothers and sisters from all over Africa with PhDs and master's degrees. And we need to learn from these brothers and sisters. Uh, Michael, one of our brothers from Ghana who read the text last week, he came up to me before the service. He said, brother, I'm so happy to be here in God's house this morning. He said, I could not be more excited to hear God's word preached today. That's because the church should be a rejoicing and singing people. You know, Christianity is the only religion in the world that has songs. Do you know that? Why? Because we're celebrating the work that has already been completed. Every other religion hands you a to-do list. Jesus hands you a song. Now you say, well, I have nothing to sing about. My life is terrible. Well, think about how much worse it would be without Jesus. Think about how bad it would be if this life was all there is. Rejoice that he is coming to make all things new, including your life. And there are, there are so many reasons for you to sing this morning. And you get this picture here in verse 47 that when they get together, they're actually smiling. They're actually laughing. These are people that are easy to please and hard to offend. Let me say that again. These are people who are easy to please and hard to offend. Because they can't stop praising God. Their true needs have been met by Christ. And let's remember that this is a persecuted church. Like Many of these people will be killed for their faith. Thrown in a lion's den, burned alive, crucified. And yet, when they show up together, they're praising God. That's what happens when God shows up in someone's heart and when God shows up in a congregation. And this is why, number nine, the early church was attractive to outsiders because you can't get this anywhere else in the world. Verse 47 said they had favor with all the people. The people are drawn in. What's drawing them in? Two things at least. Number one, their love for one another is drawing outsiders in. That's what Jesus said would happen, right? In John 13, they'll know you're my disciples by your love for one another. And then secondly, they're attracted to the people who are praising God, offering their lives to God. In fact, I think that's why it says 
They're praising God and having favor with all the people. Those two things are linked. Praise and favor. See, unbelievers are coming and sensing something is going on here. God is moving here through this praise. And there's an attractiveness to the church and the faith. Last fundamental, the practicing everyday evangelism. This second part of verse 47, it says, And result of all this, the Lord added to the number day by day those who were being saved. Do we even believe that's possible? Day by day, salvations. I do. And may it be so here. Now, who is the one saving them? Obviously, it's the Lord. Salvation comes from God alone. But God also uses means. And, and what are those means? The members of the church sharing the gospel. These people cannot stop talking about Jesus. That's how people in the city are being converted. And in seasons of revival, in seasons of awakening, God's people take responsibility and they begin to speak the gospel and the Lord adds to the number day by day. And this happens usually two ways, come and see or go and tell. Come and see is typically what new Christians do. They bring a ton of their lost friends to the gathering or to their gospel community and say, come and see what's changing my life. If you're a new Christian, you probably still have a lot of lost friends. That's good. Bring them with you. Come and see. Go and tell is going outside the building and having conversations with people in the city, telling unbelievers the gospel. And in the church, both should be happening. You have new believers that are bringing their lost friends in, and you have mature believers who are going out making disciples intentionally. And these are the ten marks of a healthy church from Coach Luke. They're pretty basic, right? I mean, there ain't nothing that new here. This is not complicated. It's hard, but it's simple. You know, there's this business book called In Search of Excellence. It was written in 1980, and, it, and the author looked to discover and analyze 40 of the world's best companies, and he sought to find out what is the secret behind all their success, each company. And the author came to this conclusion that these companies do the basics well most of the time. They're experts in the basics. Like Lombardi said, gentlemen, this is a football. We're starting with the basics. And basics lead to revival. And I think that's what makes a great church, don't you? It's not something new. It's not something flashy. It's being experts in what God has already given us. That which is clear in the scriptures. Can we do the basics well most of the time? That determines the health of a church. And that's the church that God blesses. Now, as we move towards the end of the sermon, I, I, there are a million ways we can apply these truths, these ten truths to our lives. But I just want to focus on two applications that I think our church and each of us needs to apply to actually do what we just read. First application that I want to implore each of you to do uh, from the word is to devote yourself to this messy family. To live out this scripture and to devote yourself to this or any church family. Now the first question is, have you devoted yourself to Christ? Have you trusted in Christ for salvation, repented of your sin, received the gift of the Holy Spirit? Yes. If the answer is yes, then have you then devoted yourself to other believers? You cannot do Acts 2 in the metaverse. An Oculus cannot give you a hug. You may be watching a live stream this morning. We've had a lot of people watching live stream. We're so glad you're here. Welcome joining us, but you're not here. And you can't devote yourself to the fellowship on Facebook Messenger. This is a, live stream is a great introduction, but that is not the end. Community is the end. 
you need a real present family that you stick with, that you can see, touch, talk to. And if you are already a member of a church, are you working at building community with the people in that church? When it says they devoted themselves to the fellowship, that implies work, doesn't it? That implies accountability. That implies it takes some time. Fellowship is not microwave. Fellowship is crockpot. You know, and as a pastor, I've heard people over the years say, I don't have any friends in the church. I have no one I can call. And that may be true, but it also may not be true. It might be a lie you're believing. Community, in other words, is a two-way street. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship. And so let me ask you some questions about the fellowship. Do you arrive to the gathering or to your gospel community early enough to interact with people? Or are you a ninja? In and out, and we have no clue where you came from. You know, somebody comes up to me usually and says, I don't have any community here. And I'll ask, okay, when, when did you show up to the gathering? Like 10 minutes after it started. Okay, when did you leave as soon as it finished? Are you in a gospel community? I go every now and then. Well, there you go. Do you have a wish dream of community, as Bonhoeffer says? If you have an ideal or a wish dream of what community should be like, it will actually hinder the community you're in. Embracing the community you have rather than wishing for the community you don't is the key to actual fellowship. You see, the wish dream does not exist. It's kind of like internet pornography. She's not real. Many people have ecclesiastical pornography. They're addicted to that which is not real, to some fantasy of what it could be. Every church has problems. So do you like the actual community you're in, or do you like the idea of what community could be? And that is the key to fellowship. It's, it's very easy to love an idea. It's really hard to love actual people, especially when they come over to your house, they open your fridge, they put your, their feet on your furniture with their shoes on. And that's hard. Like subtly move stuff to infer to them, like get your feet off the table. You see, we're all broken people. And because of that, we're a broken church, aren't we? We have a perfect Savior. Can I just encourage you, don't put your hope in the church. Put your hope in the Savior of that church. The church is going to let you down. Jesus won't. So hope in Him and love the people He's given you. And if you're looking for a perfect church, don't join it. Because the minute you join it, it will stop being perfect. So find a church family. It doesn't necessarily need to be our church family, but find one and commit to it. Devote yourself to the fellowship. And if you're already committed to this church family, join a gospel community so you can do life on life with people and they can actually know you and you can know them. And if you're already in a group and maybe you're struggling with the people in that group, it's not meeting your expectations, your hopes, love them anyway. Just like Jesus loved you anyway. And watch how God brings fellowship supernaturally with people that you never liked originally. Happened to me a thousand times over. This person rubbed me the wrong way, I didn't like them at first, and now they're like my best friend. Why did that happen? Because I stayed. 
Love people, hang on, and don't let go. And when it's hard, friend, just keep looking at King Jesus. Look at him hanging on the cross for you, even when it hurt. Even when it didn't feel good, he stayed. Even when it wasn't personally beneficial to him, he stayed. And culture, friends, has told you a lie that is ruining marriages, ruining parental and kid relationships, ruining society, and that is love should feel good. Now, that's not love. That's a middle school crush. Love hurts all the time. Love is committing even when it doesn't feel good. Even when every fiber in your being says, I want to quit. Love is loving the people around you even when you feel like they don't deserve it. That's real cross-shaped love. And so devoting yourself to the fellowship means loving the community and loving them more than you complain about them. It's very easy to complain about the community. It's a lot harder to, in effect, change, like real, actual change. My friend Garrett is a pastor at church in Virginia. He had a family named, uh, a, a man named Bill and his family joined their church. And when they joined, no one invited Bill and his family over to dinner. And it offended Bill. It bothered him. But you know what he did instead? Bill began inviting members of the church over to his house for meals. And now most of the church has been invited over to Bill's house. Bill changed the culture of the church. And so I want to encourage you to be the change that you want to see. Become what you wish others would be for you. And are you grateful for the people that you have committed to today? Your church family. We should be grateful. David and Alyssa Whistle, David's one of our pastors. He and his wife are going to an unreached people group as missionaries later on this year. And they will soon be alone. Do you realize what a privilege this is for them and for us? We sent out a missionary named Ben Larson to uh, uh, the Middle East. This was Ben's family. Now all he has is texts and Zoom calls because he's reaching the unreached in an unreached area. And so we as a church enjoy the privilege of being able to gather and enjoy community together. Bonhoeffer said it like this. He said, the physical presence of other Christians is a source of incomparable joy and strength to the believer. Do you believe that today? This is incomparable joy and strength that I need. Now, think of people in RCC like Sam and Astaire who came to my house, saw I had a broken TV, and that Monday they had Amazon ship me a brand new 60-inch screen TV. That was the joy and strength I needed. I think of Jen. There was this couple who was checking out RCC. They were visiting for the weekend. And as they were leaving to go back home to another state, Jen hands them a house key and says, you can use this anytime you want. I'm like, Jen, that's not safe. You should not do that. She's like, no, I want them to join our family. She's an incomparable source of joy and strength. I think of Jules who drops off fresh bread at other members' homes. I think of Timothy who regularly visits a widow in our church so that he can speak to her in Cantonese, her heart language. I think of Sweeney, who wakes up at 4 a.m. every morning to pray. She prays for our church. She tells me she prays for me. I think of the countless times, one of your hugs, one of your prayers, one of your sermons, one of your songs, one of your acts of service has changed my entire week. 
This is the incomparable strength and joy that God has given us. This messy, broken family that will hurt you, but will make you holier. Won't you join us? Won't you stay and watch what God does? Second application point is to sacrifice for the vulnerable. And I don't know about you, as, as we close here, like, I so badly want to be a part of a church that actually does what this says, don't you? Like, I'm so tired of just talking about this and theorizing and hypothesizing. Like, have you ever been of a part of a community like this? I want to go back to this together. And these people were such a family that they're literally giving their resources to one another. The early, early Christians said, we don't need our stuff. We need to love our brothers and sisters. So they shared their possessions. They were happy to sell them to serve the vulnerable in their church. Like, would you do that? Would you sell your iPad so a brother or sister in the church can have heat? You know, community exists to the degree people say to one another, what's mine is yours. Community exists to the degree that the people say to one another, what's mine is yours. And fellowship always touches the pocketbook, always. And this is so difficult because you and I are naturally moralistic people, thinking we earn our own salvation. You see, the moralist believes God saves you and loves you because you're a pretty good person who messes up every now and then. And because that's what you think, when you look at needy people, you tell them, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps because that's what I did. You can do it too. But if on the other hand, you realize that you are a sinner saved only by the sovereign grace of the Lord Jesus, when you look at a person who smells terrible, when you look at a person who has no resources and no degrees and no accomplishments and who can't help themselves, you realize, I'm looking at the mirror. Like, this is what I look like to God spiritually. And you become generous because God was so generous with you. You see, only an encounter through the Lord Jesus Christ can you have this kind of generous spirit towards the vulnerable. And when we embrace this radical generosity together, it doesn't just change the church, it changes the city. That's what happens in Acts. It spreads everywhere. People are added to the number. In fact, a Greek philosopher named Aristides would write 100 years after Acts 2 was written, he was writing to the pagan emperor Hadrian, trying to explain how did Christianity explode across the known world. This is what he said. He said, the church loves one another. And from widows, they, not they do not turn away their esteem, and they deliver the orphan from him who treats him harshly. And he, he who has gives to him who has not without boasting. And when they see a stranger, they take him into their homes and rejoice over him as a very brother. For they do not call them brethren after the flesh, but brethren after the spirit and in God. And whenever one of their poor passes from the world, each one of them, according to his ability, gives heed to him and carefully sees to his burial. And if they hear that one of their number is imprisoned or afflicted on account of the name of their Messiah, all of them anxiously minister to his necessity. And if there's among them any that is poor and needy, and if they have no spare food, they fast two or three days in order to supply to the needy their lack of food. These people wouldn't eat, so all the brothers could eat. Basically, Aristides says, how did the church explode? 
They lived out Acts 2, even a hundred years later. They had mercy towards the vulnerable. And Aristides would eventually come to faith in Jesus. And so I want to encourage us together, not just to join and commit to a church family, but to sacrifice for the needs of the vulnerable in our church family. And my job as, as one of the leaders of the church is not just to help us know the Bible, but to lead us in applying the Bible. To lead us in meeting the needs of the vulnerable in our church. And part of meeting the needs is being aware of them. So I want to make you aware of three major needs of the vulnerable in our community, in this community. First is, we recently had a widow in our church lose her son, her only family. The tragic loss, and she needs $5,000 to help pay for the funeral expenses. Now, in faith, we already paid for it. But that was from savings. We would love the church to come and help pay for that. Second need is we have many folks who are disabled and handicapped and elderly who want to come to our worship gathering here with us but are unable because there's only one entry point, stairs. And so there are brothers and sisters in our church who are handicapped in wheelchairs, aren't able to climb stairs, and they're watching the gathering on the first floor on the live stream because they can't come up. I mean, I think it's crazy that people want to come to our gathering, uh, but they can't be here with us. Uh, I have, and many other brothers in our church, have literally carried up brothers and sisters in our church family who are wheelchair-bound up the stairs. It, first time it was fun. It was kind of like in the Gospels, you know, when they, the friends brought Jesus, their friend to Jesus, dropped him down from the roof, and it was cool. But by the third time, it got a little old. Like, we, we need to be able to get these people up to gather with God's people. And the reality is, is that we have this incredible facility that God has provided to us by His grace for a three-and-a-half, four-year-old church plant. It's insane. But our building is not currently a reflection of the gospel. Because it is not accessible to the vulnerable. And from our 100 years for the city campaign, we were able to raise about half the money needed to install the elevator, but we still need about $100,000 more to be able to do the construction and install the elevator that makes, gives access to all four floors of the building. And we feel like this is an urgent need for the vulnerable in our church so that we can serve them well. And the third need is, uh, two weeks ago, Pastor Wilson shared how we just hired a new family ministry director to help care for the kids in our church. And that uh, Josh, he's, he's planning to move in March to start then. And we believe God's going to use Josh and his leadership to empower our church to serve the kids in our church family and many of the functionally fatherless in the city who don't have a home, that we can provide a home away from home in our kids' ministry space and throughout our church. And Josh is so committed to the mission and vision of RCC, so blown away by what God is doing that he's raising half of his salary himself to work here. And uh, he's way overqualified to be doing that. But we're thankful. And to provide for our portion of the salary, we need about $10,000 to be able to give him a fair salary so that he can therefore care for our kids and the kids in the city. And so these three urgent needs of vulnerable peoples, which include the, the widow, disabled and elderly, and children, total up to about $115,000 of need for the vulnerable. And so, I mean, our elders were looking at these needs, and, and you know, we're talking about Acts 2. We're going through Acts 2 right now. And it was crazy. Like, can you believe that we're actually going through this section of Scripture 
while we have these urgent needs so prevalent right now. And our elders felt led, like, what if we laid it all down and actually did this? We ourselves as leaders, and we challenge our church to give up our comforts and, and luxuries to provide for the vulnerable peoples in our church. And so we decided together, let's do something we're calling the Mercy Initiative. Where we, call, we ask everyone who calls our sissy home to consider to live out Acts 2 with us. To devote themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship. Out of your thankfulness in the gospel, to actually do what the Bible says and sacrifice for the vulnerable. And so we're going to collectively, as a church, sell some of our stuff, gather our resources, maybe get rid of some of our savings to invest in those who are needy in our community. To do what Aristides said, they love one another. That's how they grew. And even this week, Sherry and I were just talking and praying, like, what can we give that we don't need for the widow, for the elderly, the disabled, the children. I was asking my son this week, like, son, what's a toy you can give up or sell so we can do this together? And there are members in our church, you know, our family members uh, voted and approved on this last Sunday, this initiative. And we already have members who are selling their Xboxes and Playstations. I had a, a woman come up to me beginning of the first service and she said, my, son, uh, my husband sold his Playstation 4. You finally got him to stop playing FIFA. I'm like, I'm, I'm happy to serve. <laughs> there are people selling furniture. There are people sacrificing their out-to-eat budgets. There are people who are, we're, we're collectively sacrificing so that we can meet this need and live this out together. And so here's, here's our application to actually live out what we're preaching about. Here's what I'm challenging myself to do and you to do. We're going to keep working through the book of Acts week by week like we have been. But we're going to keep bringing up this idea of sacrificing for the vulnerable over the next month. And we're going to challenge you to consider how you can grow your faith and stretch to sacrifice to meet the needs of others. And so what I want to ask you to do is to go home today, before the Super Bowl starts, or maybe after the Super Bowl, and talk to your family. Pray with your family. Maybe pray with your roommate. Talk with your kids and say, how can we sacrifice to live this out? To actually do this. Ask your kids, like, what can we give up for the widow? other disabled or other children in the city and in the church. And what we're going to do is collectively on Sunday, March 13th, we're going to, what we're calling Commitment Sunday, we're going to all bring what we sacrificed together and attempt to raise $115,000 to meet the needs of these vulnerable groups. And I, I really believe, like if God showed me anything, we can hit this goal. Like if every adult attender gives $600 over and above their tithe, we would hit this goal and provide for these needs. I don't know, some can give more than 600, some can't give 600, that's okay. The challenge is, how can you sacrificially give? Not because it's required, like you, you're, there's no requirement here. This is an opportunity to show Jesus how thankful you are for giving to you when you were vulnerable. And if we do not hit the $115,000 goal, that is completely okay. Like, if we raise all the money but don't raise our faith and don't stretch to sacrifice, then we've failed. But if we don't raise $115,000, but our church came together and sacrificed together, and that is a huge win. You think God's going to look down at us and say, yeah, I know how you, like, gave everything to serve me, but you didn't hit the goal. Fail. No. 
Oh, he's going to be like, are you kidding me? My kids are actually doing what I said. They're coming together to meet the needs of the people that are vulnerable amongst them. It's amazing. I can't think of anything that would make him happier. Again, 2 Corinthians 9 says, no one is required to give, but God loves a cheerful, sacrificial giver. So don't hear me guilting any of you. Hear me inviting you to be a part of what God loves. And so, friends, let's live out the word. Let's be devoted, as the early church was. Committing to a church family, this one or another one, and sacrificing for the vulnerable. And let's see God add to our number day by day. Would you pray with me? Oh, Jesus, thank you for your word that shows us what church should look like. Would you help us to not just know, but to apply what we learned today? Help us to be devoted to your word, to be devoted to one another, to be devoted to the needs of the vulnerable. Lord, we, I pray over the next month as we consider the book of Acts and we consider the vulnerable, that you would challenge each of us to lay our lives down to sacrifice for the needs of those around us, for the widow, for the elderly, the disabled, for children. And God, I pray that on March 13th, we would come together as a church ready to give in an offering that would be pleasing in your sight. Lord, I pray that you would help us hit this $115,000 goal so we can care for these needs. But more importantly than that, I pray you would stretch us to make us more like Jesus, the great giver. May we lay down our luxuries so we can embrace more intimacy with you. And may all of this sacrifice and love and commitment show the world that you are who you say you are and add to our number. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you were encouraged by today's message, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you stream your podcasts. To find other messages or get more information about Redemption City Church, visit us online at rccbaltimore.org. Thank you for listening to the Redemption City Church Podcast.